Welcome to episode one of Streams and Variations, the podcast where writing evolves. In this show, you will first hear a monologue. That monologue has then been passed on to a songwriter who has written a song inspired by the monologue. That song is then passed on to a writer who writes a monologue based on that song, then on to another songwriter, and so on. Like a game of broken telephone, each writer has only seen the work that immediately precedes their own. What elements of each piece will continue to the next? What recurring themes will we see? What transformations will arise from the mind of each new artist? Let's find out. My name is Jamie Johnson, and I'll be your host. As a writer, I am all too often asked where my ideas come from. More often than not, my reply is, I saw something the other day, or I read this, I was listening to, or in the words of Harlan Ellison, I purposely mishear things. And all the playwrights, novelists, songwriters, screenwriters, and poets I know say the same thing. Writing is about the process of taking things in, Words, images, sounds, emotions, thoughts, conversations, and using your own personal filter, expressing those back to the world. That's what this show is about. For our first season, we brought together the talents of 36 writers, playwrights, songwriters, screenwriters, and musical composers, and their work will be heard through these six episodes. All of these writers were on very strict deadlines. Each piece you hear was written over the course of one week. Each piece was directly inspired by the previous piece you will hear and will itself directly inspire the following piece you will hear. Listen intently and find the connections between the pieces. See what ideas are used and repeated, what ideas fall away but reoccur. See how the story evolves. Moving forward, we will also be releasing talkbacks for each episode as part of this season. These talkbacks will include discussions between myself and the other artists, where we will dive deeper into the writing process and how each piece was developed. What elements did each artist consciously carry forward? What elements can be seen in each piece from the episode? Each full episode and talkback will be available through this podcast, so please subscribe through your preferred service. And if you like what you hear... Maybe give us a five-star review so we can make more stories based on songs based on stories. This first episode contains monologues written by myself, Sean Erker, and Chantel Ford. These monologues are performed by Tony Fletcher, Andrea Irwin, and Brianna Love. And it contains songs written and performed by Caleb Stull, Rachel Cardiello, and David Newberry. So sit back and let these artists carry you through our first stream and its variations. Monologue 1, Dad, written by Jamie Johnson, read by Tony Fletcher. Dad and I were in the barn, milking, like every morning. He was shouting about something, like every morning. He sent me to get something. It doesn't matter what. It never mattered. I was always running to get something or other. It seemed like part of milking. Get me this, get me that. It didn't matter. It was just another of his orders. So many orders. Every day. Sometimes 
I didn't know what to do without orders, like I'd forgotten how to live without him, ordering it. Live. I was coming back to the barn, and I had a hoe in my hand. I guess that's what he sent me for, but I can't remember why. Why would he need a hoe when we were milking? That makes no sense. Why did I need and have a hoe in my hand? There has to be a there reason to be for a... it. What was the... Never mind. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It... I come around the corner from the shed, and I look up. There's a groundhog right in front of the barn door. I stopped and looked at it. It stood there, frozen. I heard Dad yelling. I just stood there, staring. The groundhog seemed to be stuck in place. I could see Dad coming from the corner of my eye. I guess by the way I was staring, he knew something was there. He slowed down and creeped around the corner of the door. He saw the groundhog. He stopped, looked around, and then ran at me, screaming. I jumped, and the groundhog ran into a corner and got trapped between a couple of walls. Orders. Always orders. Kill it! Kill it now! You never said no to my father. I didn't want to. I had to. Groundhogs are dangerous. They dig holes. Cows get stuck in them, break their legs. It costs money and time. I attacked it with a hoe, hitting it over and over, blood spurting. In the head! In the head! I just kept hitting it. I couldn't really see it. Tears were streaming down my face. Blood stung in my eyes. I just kept hitting. I just kept hitting. I just kept hitting. I stopped. There wasn't much left. Clean it up. Feed it to the pigs. Silence as I picked up the pieces. Dropped them in the trough. I hosed down the walls, the blood mixing in with the mud, disappearing into the dun color. By the time I went to school, all the evidence was gone. Nothing was left. I yelled to Mom, Bye! As I ran for the bus to school. I didn't. I was twelve. There was an announcement for me to go to the principal's office. They told me, my dad died. You told me my dad died. Heart attack. Problem? I already knew. I stood there and watched him struggle. His heart blasted apart and his chest tears streaming down his face. None on mine. Kill it! Kill it now! Screaming in my head. His orders meant nothing. Clean it up. Feed it to the pigs. Loud, screamingless words. He died on the floor of the barn, muddy pools under his eyes. I yelled to Mom, Bye, as I ran for the bus to school. I didn't. They all stood around, waiting for me to break into tears or something, wanting to give me all their pity. I don't do pity. My dad wouldn't have wanted it. He couldn't stand that kind of emotional commitment. The only emotion he could commit to was anger. Just ask Mom. Just ask me. Those other two were free to be. I wasn't. I was the new man of the house. But I wasn't a man. I sat looking at the principal, wondering what to do. I wanted to say, I watched him die this morning in the barn. It didn't seem right. So I just sat, looking. 
Song one, He Died As He Lived, written and performed by Caleb Stull. Chasing him down Yet I couldn't name What he refused to give me He's tired of carrying that anger around Love is either being born Or on its way to dying He died as he lived He pissed off from working Midst the hay and shit A quiet man Unless he was angry His face read one last injustice His face read one last injustice His face read one last injustice Monologue 2, Prairie Fire, by Sean Urker, read by Andrea Irwin. We often saw fire on the farm. Not the warming fire of a hearth or the rejuvenating fires that can sweep away the dead and the broken, but shimmering fires of the prairie sky undulating ribbons of orange and blue that would cut through the darkness at night when my brothers and I would rush out of our home to lay in the field and watch. We knew that other families called it the Northern Lights, but our father would always say it was God's fire. 
Jophiel's flaming sword sent from heaven to strike down the wicked. Like children who brought mud into the house under their shoes or spoke back against their parents. The kind of children we would sometimes see outside the Petro in town but never saw in church. Father would warn us that Jophiel would punish us too if we were bad. But he did a good enough job punishing us himself that I always thought it would be a, a waste of God's time. As the wicked saw the flaming sword, the righteous saw the bounty. In good years, when our modest crop was a little less modest, we would give thanks for the blessing. Father used to say that God gave us the land, but I saw the patent letter and it was signed by the Minister of the Interior. I once asked him if the families working larger farms were more righteous, but he turned to anger and assured me they weren't. They think they're better, but they're not. Still, I always thought this meant our family had fallen in some way. My great-grandmother came from wealth, I was told. If you go far enough back through the begats, her family once owned a third of Manhattan when it was still called New Amsterdam. But by the 1920s, the only thing left of whatever money they once had were stories and a lingering sense of superiority. Generations that lived their entire lives with confidence that their surroundings were just a momentary setback. So, when she agreed to marry my great-grandfather, maybe it seemed like rectification that would right things as they should be. He had, after all, assured her that he owned land, and down there, land meant money. Of course, there was no such land. In truth, he owned nothing but debts. But back then, you could still get a homestead in the last Best West for less than $20. So, he brought her to Alberta. Too late to get any of the good homesteads close to the railway, but right on time to see the Depression. They settled on a quarter section near a place the Plains Cree called Weatu, and the maps called Wyatt Lake. Great-grandfather was good enough to build a sod house and father three children to live in it, but he wasn't good enough to stick around, and after ten years or so he left and never came back. To survive, great-grandmother sold off bits and pieces of the farm every year until her sons were old enough to divide the rest of it between themselves. By the time the farm came to my father, what was once a sod house was made of wood, and what was once 160 acres was less than 40. The railroad never got closer, though, and the land would not yield its strength, so our family's only real tradition was debt like an heirloom that was passed to the next generation wrapped in silk and stored in the bottom drawer. If the family business was failure, my father took to it very well. What debt he was given came back sevenfold. He refused to leave anything fallow, and each new year would see him planting something different, substituting one crop for the other, and then inevitably blaming the seeds when they didn't take. Blame for the seed would become blame for the salesman. Claims of cheating became claims of conspiracy. Soon all of the neighbors and most of the world were working together to enact a strategy against my father to destroy him, at least in his own mind. And every year the harvest shrank while his birthright grew. 
He was no better a husband than he was at husbandry. With hindsight, that seems obvious. But at the time, at nine years old, I, I didn't understand why our mother left one night. Why her sister and her brother-in-law arrived at our home after midnight in a station wagon. Why my father told her she could leave, but the kids couldn't. Or why he was holding a gun when he said it. I didn't know why she never looked back when her sister rushed her out the door. I did understand why my older brothers left, though. First one, then the other. It had to do with the way our father would look at us, his anger that would burn through his skin and never extinguish itself, as if there were an endless supply of fuel just under the surface. We were too much like our mother, he would say. His refusal to take her picture down from the wall just made things worse. Like the soil, we constantly failed him, yet always surrounded him. So, it was just the two of us when the letters started to come. Letters that spoke of foreclosure and right of redemption. At least I assume they all said that because after the first, father would throw them in the fire before either of us had a chance to read them. The letters became visits by a banker, then a lawyer. None of the visits lasted very long. They would say something about executing a certificate. My father would yell something about the Sixth Protocol or natural law. Nobody seemed happy. At one point, my father took me to Pincher Creek to sit in the back of a courtroom. When they called out Lot and then a number, he stood and proudly proclaimed that they had no claim against him, for he was a sovereign citizen and free man on the land. He pointed to the fringe on the flags hanging from poles on the corner of the courtroom and explained how this meant the judge could only apply the law of the sea and he refused to consent. I didn't understand any of this and it seemed to me that neither did the judge. Eventually, the court sheriff forced us to leave when my father wouldn't stop yelling, a farm is not a boat, a farm is not a boat, over and over again. The next time a banker came to see us, my father shot his rifle into the air. That was the last time a banker came to see us. After that, it was the RCMP. They left a piece of paper that said we had 24 hours to vacate the premises. I asked my father if that meant I needed to pack. He said we had other work to do. I remember almost all of the last day. I remember how calm my father seemed for the first time. I remember the smell of the propane and how the smell almost seemed to get worse as the propane seeped into the walls and the floor. I remember my father breaking off pieces of his own bed to add to the piles of lumber that blocked both the front and the back door. I remember it took a very long time after he started the fire for me to realize that we weren't going to leave. That he wasn't going to let me leave. I remember him holding me down as the heat grew 
and all I could see were the pictures on the wall curling as they burned inside their frames. But I don't remember the RCMP surrounding the house or them breaking down the door or how they got past the pile of wood in the bed frame. I don't remember the gunshots, either the ones from my father or the ones that killed him. I don't remember being carried out of the house, but I was told afterwards that the fire was so strong that the one who carried me received third-degree burns. It made sense that nobody tried to carry my father's body out before the house collapsed. They said it was a miracle that I was unharmed. No burns. No injuries. Others told me I should thank God for his protection. They said by the time firefighters arrived at the house, it was nothing but cinders, and the flames had spread to the fields. They said the fields were still burning hours later, turning to gold and red ribbons that reached up into the night sky. I asked, but they would not let me return to watch. Song 2, Prairie Fire, written and performed by Rachel Cardiello.
Monologue 3, Swords and Flames, by Chantel Ford, read by Brianna Love. wasn't ever coming back. And 
I just sat there and I didn't feel sad or mad or scared. All I felt was this empty hole in my stomach where the Cheerios were supposed to go. The whole thing with the fire happened pretty soon after. Maybe it was the next day or even that same day. I can't remember it clearly. People say I blocked it out, but I didn't. I can't remember what day it was or what I was wearing. But I remember the flames like someone burned them into the inside of my eyeballs. The smell wasn't like campfire. It was like gas or barbecue before the meat goes on. The fire sort of flicked up the curtains like it was trying to swallow them whole. It hurt my eyes, but I never closed them. He held me there on the couch, said it was God's will, and we watched as things burned. Something inside me was screaming to push him off. Get out, get out, get out. And this other part wanted to be eaten up like the photographs and the curtains. Not blinking, just licked up and breathed out of smoke. Song 3, I Was Just a Kid, written and performed by David Newberry. She said, ask me who, ask me what. 
Ask me when, ask me where She said ask me how, I don't care Just don't ask me why She said are you a lawyer, you a cop, a reporter Hey what's your end, I said and she laughed I'm a friend she just shook her head She said you'll never see the sword Until it's at your neck I said I read the news I know the fire I knew your mother I remember when she left Her name was Diana she did her best And so I came She said what is best What is effort What is love What is justified What is two and two When it is a five I've seen nobody's best She said you'll never see the sword Until it's at your neck I said there must be something That is outside of here We can look for it Look inside your soul I said there's something there We can rebuild to full She said I can't even lay in a bed She said, I'll never see the sword Until it's at my neck She said, fullness is a circle That is empty in the mid They were supposed to keep me safe I was just a kid Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Caleb Stalt, Rachel Cardiello, David Newberry, Sean Urker, and Chantel Ford for creating pieces for this episode. And thank you to Tony Fletcher, Andrea Irwin, and Brianna Love for their performances. For more information about our artists, visit our website at streamsandvariations.com. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review so we can be seen and subscribe to the podcast on our website or on your preferred platform. You can find us at Streams and Variations on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram, we are at VariationsPod. You can drop us a comment or questions by email at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is the first in our Talkback series where we discuss this writing stream with singer-songwriter David Newberry. We look forward to you dropping in and giving us a listen. Looking forward to it. Bye for now.